from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Good morning. My name is Tom Green. I'm one of the elders currently serving on this session here at First Presbyterian Church. Please join me in the call to worship. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, let us pray. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and what has become for us you consuming fire and judgment. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open us to a future which cannot be changed. And grant us grace to grow more and more in image. Through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Amen. Beloved, hear the good news. Who is in a position to condemn? Only Christ. And Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ prays for us. Believe the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Forgiven, freed, and faithful people, let us worship God. From Job 1.1 to 1.22. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of action and 500 she-asses and a very great household. So that this man was the greatest of all the men in the East. And his sons went and feasted in their house every one his day and sent and called for the three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was so, when the days of feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings, according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the early, from walking up and down in it, 
And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has and hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands as substance increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The asses were plowing, and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped to learn to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, <coughs> The fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only escaped to learn to tell them. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made up three bands and fell upon the camels, and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and they daughters were eating and drinking wine in the brother's house, in the eldest in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness, and smote the four corners of the house, and fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose and rent his mantle, and shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. Gavin, thank you again for reading that long text, as Pastor Rebecca just said, and reading it in the King James Version, no less. That was very impressive. Thanks for sharing your gifts and your courage this morning with us all. Let us pray. Lord, break open your word afresh to us so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus, the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, last week we started a four-week sermon series that coincides and shares the same name as our annual campaign for ministry year 2016, Living Gratitude. We are focusing on what it means to cultivate a life of gratitude that moves beyond emotion. In other words, we're not just going to be focusing on what it means to feel grateful. Rather, we're going to be focusing on what it 
means to act gratefully. Last week, I reflected on one activity in particular that encourages us into this activity of gratitude, into this living gratitude. That activity was naming our blessings, the blessings that God has poured out into our lives in a regular and routine way. Today, we take another step forward in our time of reflection on living gratitude by reflecting on what it means to act gratefully in the midst of suffering. What does it mean to act gratefully in the midst of suffering? What does it mean to cultivate this life of gratitude against the backdrop of loss or grief or depression or loneliness or isolation or the imminence and escapability of death? How many folks do we have in the room this morning that are fans of the British comedy troupe Monty Python? Good. You're bold in raising your hands. Well done. Keep them up. Raise them just real quick. There we go. As I was preparing for this sermon, I was thinking about the movie The Life of Brian. Released in 1979, The Life of Brian follows the absurd tale of a Jew born on the same day and right next door to Jesus of Nazareth. Brian is followed by an irreverent and clumsy and ragtag group of disciples that mistake him for the Messiah. The film ends with Brian being crucified in this mass crucifixion scene with several, several hundred other people being crucified. And one of the characters begins to talk to Brian and says, hey, cheer up, always look on the bright side of life. They begin to, I heard a whistle. Somebody tried to whistle it. Uh, these crucified men and women begin to, to transform into a chorus. If life seems jolly rotten, there's something you've forgotten, and that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing. When you're feeling in the dumps, don't be silly chumps. Just purse your lips and whistle, that's the thing, and always look on the bright side of life. For some, this scene verges on blasphemy. Uh, for others, it verges on the truth. Because it illuminates for us a temptation in the Christian life that in the midst of suffering, we quickly want to move past it. We quickly want to move through it. Or, or we, we want to focus on, on what's positive. We want to focus on what's good. Or maybe we're simply pretending it's not happening. When Marx called religion the opiate of the masses, what he was saying was that people often use religion like a drug to ignore or escape the realities of life. To ignore or escape the realities of injustice or inequality or human suffering. A work of religious satire in its highest form, the final scene of the life of Brian actually presents a deep theological challenge to the church. In the midst of ongoing suffering, are we simply going to ignore it and only look on the bright side of life, or are we actually going to be honest about its power and its reality? The story of Job is a great example of this. Uh, 
Job, a righteous and blameless man, has everything taken from him, his family, his servants, his business, his possessions, his property, his health. 41 chapters later, 41. You have to go through 41 chapters to get to the end where God restores everything, restores his health, restores his business, restores his family, restores his possessions. In fact, the scripture writer says God restored it two times over. Now, we could pass through quickly those other 40 chapters, couldn't we? Go from chapter 1 to chapter 42. We could ignore what's in between. We could possess a faith that swiftly moves through it and ignores the question framed in two words, why God? Why God? We could ignore the suffering Job actually experiences. We could ignore the interaction Job has with his wife who encourages him to curse God and die. We could move past the interactions with his friends who accuse him of wrongdoing and say that that's the reason you're suffering, Job, because you've done something wrong. We could ignore the profound conversation between Job and God where the only answer given to Job and the question why is the answer, I am God and you're not. A story like Job's is just one of many examples of the Bible's unflinching realism that affirms the reality of life and death, that affirms the reality of joy and sorrow, that affirms the very core and contour of our faith, the juxtaposition between cross and resurrection. I begin here first with these words of caution. Because being grateful in the midst of suffering does not mean that we are ignorant to the reality of suffering or unaware of its power, unaware that it is very real. We're not talking about an exercise of dishonest optimism, dishonest in the sense that we only focus or name the silver lining and do not name the cloud that is pouring down on us and blocking out all of the sunlight. When I invited Ashley to share his story with us this morning and how he thinks about maintaining gratitude in the midst of suffering, I encouraged him to be honest And you heard that honesty. As you heard him reflect on Karen's death, the grief and the pain and the loss are not resolved. They're not resolved. They're not replaced by God's blessing in the privilege that he had to be married to Karen or the privilege that he has to steward this little life in Korah or the privilege that he has in this amazing church that surrounded him and his family during that time. These blessings do not nullify the suffering. They do not replace it. They simply exist alongside of it. It's all there. When I was a teenager, I had this VHS tape that I just about wore out. It was called Come Fly With Me. It's a story of Michael Jordan's career from his days in high school up until 1989, which is when the film was made, even before he won any championships. It was about 
his story, his life. One of the stories from that film was about how Michael Jordan was actually cut from his high school basketball team during his sophomore year. Now, there are people of a certain generation who know that story because of Come Fly With Me. We, we know that story, and, and these people of a certain generation now have children who are trying out for sports. And in a moment of anxiety when the child is worried about whether or not they're going to get cut, or in a moment where they actually do get cut, there are people of a certain generation that immediately remember this story and they say, son or, 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 or daughter, remember, cheer up, Michael Jordan got cut from his high school basketball team during his sophomore year. There are two problems with this way of thinking. Number one, our kids aren't Michael Jordan. <laughs> Let that just sink in. <laughs> and second, on a more serious note, it seeks to replace a story of disappointment and sadness with an optimism that tries to resolve something that in the moment seems unresolvable. Instead of sharing in the sadness of the story, we tell a different story in the hopes of making it better or alleviating the pain. One of my fondest memories of my father, and on this All Saints Day, I call him to mind. One of my fondest memories of him was in the seventh grade. When I was in the seventh grade, I made it to the last day of tryouts for our middle school baseball team, and I got cut, and I held back the tears because I didn't want to cry in front of my friends or my, my peers, and I climbed into the cab of his truck and I just let it loose. I was like a fountain, just crying. And I know like any father would be in that moment would, would want to be in a place where he could offer a gift, any parent where she could offer a gift to alleviate the pain. But in his wisdom, he chose not to do that. He chose instead to keep vigil with me. He chose not to resolve it with another story, but allowed the sadness of that moment to be sad, to be unresolved, to be hard. This sets us up for a second caution when it comes to acting gratefully in the midst of suffering. I have a Presbyterian pastor friend named Billy Honor here in Atlanta. He started a, a church called Pulse Church in Grant Park. They just began worshiping recently this fall, and he has started the ministry there with a sermon series called The Lies My Preacher Told Me. If you want to know more about it, I'd encourage you to go to their website. But it got me thinking about a lie that I'm prone to tell when I preach. It's certainly unintentional, but nonetheless strays far from the truth. And to explain it, allow me to share how I came to the realization that I was actually doing it. A few weeks ago, I was in Denver for my community of pastors group, and we had the chance to hear a lecturer named Miguel de la Torre, who is a professor of theology and social ethics at Iliff School of Theology at the University of Denver. He was prophetically speaking to this group of, of Presbyterian preachers and he challenged us with these words, stop plagiarizing the stories of the poor and brokenhearted that resolve. Stop plagiarizing those stories. He said the American mainline Protestant preacher is disposed toward optimism where every story she or he tells resolves. 
like a 30-minute sitcom. And he said, You're, you do it especially during stewardship season. <laughs> because you want people to feel enthused and, and encouraged, and you want to talk about how God is changing lives through the church, and we tell all of these wonderful stories and how everything resolves. He said, I don't blame you. Your congregations want to hear about hope and optimism. It's easier to preach that way. It's easier to talk about the power of God transforming lives. But the challenge comes, he said, is when you choose to only tell those stories that resolve and not the ones that end in hopelessness and despair. He said, I'm an immigrant child from Cuba who grew up in a Bronx housing project. People love to tell my story. They love to tell my story. They say, look, here, here's a guy that, that made it. Here, here's, a, here's a guy who, who took what God had given him and his talents and he stewarded them well. And, and what a success he is. Now a PhD, a professor at an accredited theological institution. Dr. De La Torre continued with these poignant words. He says, they, they put me on a pedestal, and what they see is success and God's power in my life. But what I see as I look down from that pedestal, I see all the dead bodies of all my friends who never made it out of those projects. And I hear the silence of God, and I wonder who will tell their stories. The lie is this, there's only one story we ought to tell. Stories of success, stories of hope, stories of optimism where we can easily trace the lines and say, look at how God has changed things. But it cannot be these stories alone and the church bears a burden to find these words, to articulate them to each other and to a broken world. We have to tell these stories. We have to tell the stories of suffering. We have to tell the stories of racial inequality. We have to tell the stories of mass incarceration. We have to tell the stories of hopelessness and despair. We have to tell the stories of unemployment, of depression, and of loneliness. We have to tell the stories of the widening gap between the rich and the poor. We have to tell the stories of broken relationships and broken homes. We have to tell the stories that have yet to be resolved. We tell those stories not to be pessimistic or to negate the promises made in Revelation 21 that says there will come a day when God will wipe every tear from their eye, when death and mourning and crying will be no more, where the old things will have passed away, where God will usher in a new heaven and a new earth, where God will make God's forever home with mortals. We affirm that hope to be true. But we still have to tell the other stories to remind us that for some, today is not that day. Today is not that day. Even so, may we recognize something that Job eventually recognized in the midst of his suffering, that God is God. That God is God of both the suffering Job and the restored Job. That God is God of both resolved and unresolved stories. 
That God is the God of those that make the team and those that get cut. That God is the God of those that achieve a PhD as well as being the God of those who never get out of the projects alive. That God is the God of those who mourn and suffer and grieve. And God is the God of those who are filled with experiences of great joy. And this God, in all of it, is faithful. And the way that we can say thank you to this God for being God in all circumstances is by being in solidarity with those who God is God for, which is everybody. We can say thank you, God, by being in solidarity with the brokenhearted, with those who suffer, with those who mourn, and when we do, we act gratefully for a God who is a God of everything. May we remember this truth, and may we affirm our faith as we rise to our feet, even now. Church, what is your only comfort in life and in death? I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. You may be seated. And I invite the ushers to wait upon us now as we continue our worship of God by the stewarding of our morning tithes and offerings. Thank mm-hmm. you. 